0: It was a friend's birthday and a group of us were gathering for dinner at her place to celebrate. It was for the most part an intimate gathering with close friends and their partners, though as per undulations of love among a group of friends, there were some partners and significant others that were new to the group. When we settled in for a conversation after dinner, my friend suggested that we initiate a sharing circle by going around the room and each person speaking about a transformative or impactful experience they'd had in their lives in the past year. The idea was to break the ice with the newcomers um, and to move on from small talk to deeper, more interesting conversation. So we went around the room and we shared one by one about some personal change. One person spoke about having gotten married recently and the experience of that commitment, and the challenges of that commitment. Others spoke about academic achievements, having finished graduate school, and the confusion that often comes with having reached a goal successfully and not knowing what to do ahead. Another spoke about career shift. She had recently quit her law practice and was becoming a yoga instructor. Much better choice. Um, Life goals, plans, achievements, these were all a major theme. Toward the end of the circle, the turn landed on a young man, and he was not a regular of the group. And at first he hesitated, but then he shared about a personal loss he had undergone in the last year. His wife, young, beautiful, at her prime, had in that past year passed away from a terrible battle with an aggressive and unusual form of cancer. The room fell awkwardly silent. None of us had thankfully experienced anything as painful, and no one really knew what to say. And the more details you heard about his story, the more it would break your heart. I learned that his, he and his wife were teenage sweethearts, the kind you might read about in a novel that would inevitably made into a romantic movie. They were molded into each other from a young age. They were married right out of college. He spoke about her with such tenderness and devotion that he deeply loved her, that she she formed a deep part of his sense of self, and now she was abruptly gone from his life. He said he was surprised the sky didn't fall down the day she died, although perhaps what he was really saying was that to him it felt like it had. This man's sharing had probably only lasted a few minutes, but his words sprawled across the room. They settled in among us with such a weight, it was as if new bodies had joined the room. His pain was so tangibly raw and searing that the room started to feel warmer and smaller because of its intensity. And as everyone shifted nervously, thinking about what to say next, one individual bravely tried to relieve the heaviness with a positive and gentle remark about healing and moving forward. The young man wouldn't have it. He shook his head, And with a slight quiver in his voice, he replied, some cuts just run too deep. I couldn't help but continue to think about this man's difficult and moving story for days after. His words burrowed into me. Some cuts run deep. I thought about how he framed his emotional wound as a deep cut. And indeed, this is how many of us frame our emotional injuries an aching heart, a broken spirit, a broken back, and so on. And these are painful, powerful experiences usually. But what about the actual injuries we bear, the tangible cuts, the tangible marks on our bodies? I wondered, well, what kind of impact do they have, if any, on the deep parts of ourselves? Where do they meet our souls? I thought, Well, if you cut deep enough and far enough into the visible flesh, what do you reach? Do you eventually reach the spirit? How how do we understand this connection between our material body and the immaterial spirit? And what's the point of doing so? Philosophers and theologians across the ages, both Muslims and non-Muslims, have asked this question. The question of, where do mind and matter meet? And in philosophical discussion, this is called the mind-body problem. This is the conceptual problem of trying to understand how the mind, so thoughts, emotions, consciousness, how are these things related to our body? What, What properties and functions are characterized as purely mental, and what are purely physical? And why is this a problem? One reason we could say it's a problem is because the mental and the immaterial and the physical and the material are so distinct, they seem so separate from each other, and yet they're so intimately connected to each other in making who we are. So in religious discussion, turning to that, mind, what philosophers called mind, was replaced with soul. So human beings were understood as composed of body and soul. And the discussion began to revolve around the nature of the soul and its relationship to the body. And I'm not going to go into all of the fine uh, linguistic discussions here between mind and soul and spirit and self. There's so many uh, concurrent terms we use, but I'm just going to stick to soul for simplicity's sake. So in summary, we can say that soul was understood as the immaterial, the, the intangible aspects or essence of a human being, the true essence, the, the thing that imprints our individuality, our humanity onto ourselves. Um, but different religions and philosophers, I should say, put forth a variety of typologies um, about what is the nature of the soul. And where does it come from? How does it come into existence? its mortality, its eternity, and its relationship to the body. And Muslim sages, philosophers, theologians spent a lot of time, substantial, rigorous thought on this topic. Um, Very broadly speaking, in Islam we can say the soul comes into existence at the same time as the body. Um, In the Quran, in Surah 81, verse 7, souls are talked about as paired or married, the word "zoge" is used, the word for marriage. They're married to bodies. Um, and it's known as the element that animates the body. Without, without a soul, a body is lifeless. It gives it life. It gives it uniqueness. It gives it desire. The soul is, ends this link to the body at death, where the body becomes lifeless and without any of these unique properties. Um, and thereafter, the soul moves on. It has a life of its own, its union with the body, we're told is a temporary condition. Indeed, Muslim philosophers and theologians argued that the final end, the happiness of the soul, is ultimately its ability to separate from the body um, and become part of the eternal aspects of the universe. So, the soul's relation to the body was characterized as bringing the body into form, bringing will into the body, bringing life into the body. So, while body and soul are distinct and separate, They have distinct and separate properties. They're simultaneously individual, indivisible, excuse me, and and inevitably linked. Um, But philosophers agreed and theologians agreed that the soul was said to perfect the body. So the body needs the soul. And we can agree that the soul, eternal, immaterial, immortal, perfects and animates the body. But we might ask, thinking along the question I opened with, what, if anything, does the mortal, finite, imperfect body do for the soul? And to better think through this Islamically and understand the soul-body relationship, let's turn together to thinking about the person known as the most perfect manifestation of a human being. The beautiful model, quote-unquote, according to God's description in the Quran. And I quote, Verily, in the apostle of God, you have a good example for everyone who looks forward with hope and awe to God in the last day and remembers God unceasingly. Unquote. That's from uh, Surah 33, verse 21. So let's Take a look at the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. One of the most um, interesting and intriguing and really well-studied episodes from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's life is the incident involving the opening of his breast uh, in which he's prepared for his prophetic role. Are you all familiar with this incident? People have read about it? I see lots of nods. Good. A lot of the scholarly commentaries, the theological commentaries on this incident, say it occurred twice in the prophet's life. uh, Though some say it occurred many more times, multiple, multiple times. Um, And so I'm gonna talk about the first time it occurred. And this was when he was young. And in this, I'm going to read a narration from Sahih Muslim. And it went something like this, this incident. So this is a quote. It is narrated from Anas bin Malik, may Allah be pleased with him, that Jibreel, the angel, came to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, when he was playing with the other boys. Jibreel took hold of him and threw him to the ground. Then he opened his chest and he took out his heart, from which he extracted a clot of blood. And he said, This was shaitan's share of you. Then Jibril washed his heart, the Prophet's heart, in a gold basin that was filled with Zamzam water. Then he joined it together and returned it to its place. The other boys went running to the Prophet's mother, that was his nurse in some narrations, and said, Muhammad has been killed. They all rushed to him, and they found him all right, although his color had changed. Anas said, I used to see the mark of that stitching on his chest. This is a very, very interesting incident, um, and it's actually alluded to. Most commentaries say that Surah uh, Shahr, Surah 94, verse 1 of the Qur'an, alludes to this incident, beginning with the address to the prophet, Do we not open and expand your breast and remove from you the burden that galled your back and raise the esteem of you? There's so many different metaphorical and spiritual interpretations of this incident, and they're important and plentiful, and I'm sure you yourselves can think of many. What's interesting to me here, and what I want to draw your attention to, is the sheer bodilyness, the corporeality of the prophet's spiritual experience. The entire process is described in stark physical terms. So going through it, an ambiguous figure comes to the prophet, knocks him on his back, rests his chest open, thrusts his hand inside, removes his heart, and then puts it all back together again. It's a scene of a surgery, a modern-day surgery taking place in the middle of a boy's playing field, or in some narrations, on top of a mountain. And while all the commentaries or many of the commentaries rightly recognized this as a truly magnificent and miraculous and, and really beautifully anointed cleansing of the prophet, many of them were also not off in emphasizing how formidable and even terrifying and traumatic this incident was. It must have at least been a terrifying sight to the other children and that's why they ran and, and thought he had been killed. The Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is said to have felt no pain, or trauma, however. However, his chest was left with a scar, a scar that would serve as both a memory of what happened and a proof that it did happen, a proof of his spiritual transformation, but in the most bodily manifest way. Now, I want to draw attention to this story because I think reflecting on this incident against, and maybe, or more like in combination with all of the other beautiful stories from the prophet's life, can offer a meaningful way for us to think about the relationship between body and soul, those seemingly disparate spheres. While the soul mostly perfects the body, indeed it does, There are times when the body turns inwards to impact the soul, when there's impacts on the body that lead the way for the preparation of the spirit, just like for the prophet. So I invite you here to reflect with me together on a few points. Unlike many typologies of body and soul that we might be given, I invite you to reflect with me on viewing our bodies not simply as consumers of material wants one after the other, of desires, but as partners of an animating spirit, of a beautiful soul. I invite you to reflect not only of the growth of the soul, but on the growth of the body, on on the ways in which it is equally partnered, equally responsible for actions and interactions. I invite you to reflect on your bodies, any bodies, that are marked, scarred, stretched, bruised, cleaved, and the ways in which these are signs signaling growth, transformation, passage of time. Let us be aware of all of these tangible processes in connection and harmony with our souls. And I invite you to remember with me that the body though finite, fragile, imperfect, is a tool for the soul's redemption. That without our bodies, we would be unable to actually follow commandments, to actually initiate actions upon which the soul depends for its ultimate and eternal happiness. I say what I've said, may God forgive us all. Alhamdulillah, all praise and thanks are due to God alone. Some cuts do run deep. The young man's words had followed me for days. I came to learn that his piercing description was apt. This man was a surgeon. How interesting, I thought, for him to be in a position to cut carve, incise, other bodies in an effort to heal. But when his own cuts he described as beyond mend. Are cuts more manageable then when they land on the outside? Can we neatly separate inside, outside, body, soul? And cuts inside and outside, when do they feel purposeful, positive, right? transformative? And when do they sometimes feel confusing, terrifying, gruesome even? In an interesting talk I heard recently given by Karen Armstrong, a wonderful scholar, she said, the task of our time is to know each other. And her words are so profound, particularly in these difficult times and I couldn't agree more. But I would add further that the task of our time, and maybe I would boldly say of all time, is also to know ourselves. Because knowing ourselves in both fundamental and metaphorical and spiritual and bodily ways leads us to the ultimate goal, which is knowing who created us, which is knowing our Creator, which is knowing our Lord. And I think knowing ourselves also leads us to know others, to remember others with humanity and compassion, because you know they too are part of that creation. I started today with a sharing circle, a description of one anyway. And I thought this gathering would be a good space to initiate another sharing circle. Except, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to speak up. This is a silent one. I want us to, together take a moment to think about ourselves, to know ourselves. And in so doing, reflect on our outer parts, our material parts, our bodily parts. They're imperfect, they're fragile, They're finite, they're mortal. They're in decay, even as we sit here together. Let your inner gaze inhabit mercy and grace. And try to avoid viewing yourself with policing or tyranny or what many of us are guilty of viewing our bodies with. Now examine your marks, your points of impact. Where are they? What's their story? And most importantly, what do they tell you about you? Let me share, briefly, that for myself, I think of a scar I have placed on the very top of my head, sadly one that has left me explaining my hairline and parts to every stylist I have met since. Reflecting on this tells me of a cut I experienced on a carefree afternoon in my freshman year of college. It tells me about youth and a lot of foolishness, but if I think of it a little bit harder, it tells me about family and care against a very difficult backdrop, one I did not appreciate or understand at the time. In fact, it marks a point in time. It marks that point in time and invites me to remember where I was in both body and in spirit then and where I find myself now in the following. It tells me about luck, about destiny, about gratitude. It was a head injury and a serious one. I mean, I'm okay, alhamdulillah, but it was a serious one. And it tells me that it is of no doing of mine that I am standing here before you today, able-bodied and bodily able, and not a body in a hospital, and not a body fighting a disease, and not a body crossing a border, and not a body living in a refugee camp. It tells me that every significant impact leaves a mark. And understanding the mark may return us to an understanding of the impact. As a final point, I often have trouble falling asleep, confession, much to my husband's annoyance, because I always wanna talk and he never does. Interestingly, the state of sleep is said to be the one in which body and soul temporarily separate, reuniting every morning or whenever you wake. During one such spell of insomnia, I used to listen to a particular du'a every single night. It was like my lullaby. I stumbled across it sort of desperately and randomly online, um, but I came to learn that it was an invocation that the Prophet would recite. Um, And interestingly, in one source, I found that this invocation was titled the invocation by one who wakes up at night. So it was perfect for me. The du'a is titled du'a nur, and at first, it was the beauty of the recitation by Sheikh Mishari that beguiled me and was my lullaby, like I mentioned. But once I came to learn the translation, it was really the meaning that captivated me. And each night, I would close my eyes and I would allow the words of this dua to, to pour over me. And I would m- literally imagine it pouring over my body so I could get it to rest and fall asleep and I leave you with this du'a today. I'll recite it in Arabic, followed by the English translation. Dua in Allahumma ja'al fi qalbi nura, wa fi lisani nura, wa fi sammi nura, wa fi basri nura, wa min falki nura, wa min tahti nura, wa an ya'mini nura, wa an shimali nura, wa min amami nura, wa min khalfi nura, wa ja'al fi nafsi nura, (laughs) Wazzimli (laughs) Nura, Wazzamli Nura Wajarli Nura, Wajarli Nura Allahumma atini Nura Wajarl fi Asabi Wafi Lahmi Nura Wafi dami Nura Wafi Shari Nura Wafi Basheri Nura Allahumma Jarli Nura fi Wanura fi Izami Wazidni Nura Wazidni Nura Wazidni Nura habli Nuran Alanur and the translation O Allah, place light in my heart, and lighten my tongue, enlighten my hearing, enlighten my sight, and place above me light and beneath me light, and to my right light and to my left light, and in front of me light and behind me light, and place light in my soul and magnify for me the light. And amplify for me the light, and make for me light, and make me a light. O oh, Allah, grant me light, and place light in my nerves, and light in my flesh, and light in my blood, and light in my hair, and light in my skin. O oh, Allah, give me light in my grave, and light in my bones, and increase me in the light, and increase me in the light, and increase me in the light, and grant me light upon light. Amen. God commands justice, doing good, and generosity toward relatives. And God forbids what is shameful, blameworthy, and oppressive. God teaches you so that you may take heed.